You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, I enjoy being reminded and told about the ordinariness of great people. Maybe you feel the same way. Most of us feel very ordinary most of the time, if not subpar. And there can be some encouragement in discovering how normal, how ordinary people that we think are great actually are. There's a glory in the ordinary. And we're often helped by sermons and by videos and by articles that point out the glory of the ordinary. And that is not the point of Exodus 2. Don't try to make Moses ordinary. (laughs) That is not what's going on in the way the story is portrayed here. This chapter depicts a life from the very beginning that is set apart to serve in an extraordinary role in an extraordinary set of events that are the very climax of God's people before Jesus comes. Don't try to spin Moses as ordinary. Of course, he was human and ordinary in all the obvious senses. But from his birth, Moses is unusual. And that's by God's design. Moses is simply one of the greatest men in the history of the world. He was not only bilingual and bicultural, being birthed and weaned Hebrew, being raised Egyptian, 40 years in Midian, but Moses was the singular leader of God's people, his chosen people, during the most important events in their history until Jesus came. So something of the extraordinariness of Moses is seen in Numbers chapter 3, verse 12. There is no verse like this for anybody else in the Old Testament. Let me, let me read to you Numbers three twelve. Now the man Moses was very meek, humble, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And not only was Moses great, Moses was also humble. In fact, he was the most humble person in the world, which only makes him more great. So we're not trying to domesticate Moses this morning when we learn lessons from his life. Today we turn to Exodus chapter 2, and we focus on Moses' life from his birth until right up to the cusp of his formal calling from God, which we'll see next week in chapter 3, to lead God's people out of Egypt. And chapter 2 of Exodus covers two-thirds of Moses' life. It's two-thirds of his life that we just heard read, though, there in those 22 verses. And Moses was an old man. He was 80 years old at the end of this chapter. He was not a young man when God called him to do the defining work of his life. And so Exodus 2 is going to tell us about Moses' birth and then about the key events that occurred at midlife for Moses that set him on a trajectory to be the kind of old man God wanted him to be for God's purposes. So let's not make Moses ordinary. However, (laughs) there is a very ordinary pattern here in the scope of his whole life in terms of a pattern of childhood and then a distinct season of being a young man and then a season of being an old man. And this is not the only place uh, in the Bible that breaks things up like that. In fact, Acts 
7, when Stephen tells the story of Israel's history in Acts chapter 7, right before they stone Stephen, he talks about Moses' life in these very clean 40-year blocks, that there was a kind of 40 years until, that's, that's chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, until the events that we get in chapter, in verses 11 and following of our chapter today. Then there's another 40 years in Midian, and then at age 80, God calls Moses, and there's 40 more years where he leads the people out of slavery through the wilderness, and then Moses dies at 120, nice and clean, 120, 40, 80, 120. There's the life of Moses. And it's not the only place in the Bible that breaks life up into three kind of clean parts or seasons like that. For instance, the Apostle John, he's writing in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, he's writing to the church, and he breaks the church up into three categories. Children, he does this twice, children, young men, and fathers. They're more positive words than just old men. Children, young men, and fathers, the fathers of the church. And so since... The Old Testament does this. We're talking about Moses being 120 years old. And because Stephen does it in Acts chapter 7, and this chapter as well, Exodus chapter 2, is set up in those nice blocks. This chapter is first 40 years, verses 1 to 10. Next 40 years, verses 11 to 22. And then verses 23 to 25, as we'll see, is kind of pointing into the next season that will continue on in the rest of Exodus, story in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, and on beyond that. So this chapter is broken up in those three clean blocks of 40 years, and I think that's our best approach this morning. That's our framework in looking at Exodus chapter 2. We're going to look at the three exoduses of Moses' life. The, the exodus that we know of as the, capital E, exodus is not the only and not the first exodus of Moses' life. And this is one of the main points of the chapter, how God is preparing a man through various exoduses for the calling he has for him in the capital E Exodus. So we're going to see that this morning as we move here through Exodus chapter 2. And I do think there are lessons for us here as a church, in particular because we're such a young church. And there's this midlife, this middle season of Moses' life and what God's doing that has significant lessons and perspective for us as a church. And there's lessons for the, the season of fatherhood or old man life as well. So here's, here are the three exoduses of Moses' life and what God is doing in them. Number one, God protects the child through faithful women. This is chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. God protects the child through faithful women. And we saw last week in chapter 1, as Pastor Jonathan pointed out, that Pharaoh was threatened by the Israelites' growing size and strength. And first, we saw this progression. First, he tries to deal craftily or shrewdly with them. That's the same word used in Genesis 3 about the serpent in the garden. He tries to deal with them shrewdly by setting taskmasters over them. And then he ruthlessly oppresses them all out, ruthlessly oppresses them as slaves. And then he aims now, not like a serpent, but like a dragon. He aims to devour them. First in secret through the midwives, and then shamelessly in public as he commands the whole nation. This is chapter 1, verse 22. Last verse of chapter 1 sets up chapter 2. Pharaoh commands all the nation, all the people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. 
but you shall let every daughter live. And last week we saw how in and through Pharaoh, Satan is seeking to devour the coming son that God has promised. When God cursed the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he said to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, a son, singular son, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan is terrified of the offspring, of the son that is coming to be born of the woman. And the story of the Old Testament is the great mystery of how and when God brings this son and how Satan tries to maneuver to cut it off. <coughs> so God's people here in Exodus 1 and 2 are looking for a son to come. And Satan also is anticipating a son to come. But in the wisdom of God, this is so good, in God's wisdom, the very thing that Pharaoh and Satan overlook is what God makes an avenue for salvation. Pharaoh says, let every daughter live, and it is the daughters in chapter 2 who save the son. Look at the daughters who saved the son here in chapter 2. First, it's Moses' mother, and she is a daughter, verse 1, of Levi. She hides the baby for three months, verse 2, and when she can safely do so no longer, she takes a basket. Verse 3 says basket. I guess that's an okay translation. But this is the same word for ark in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. In the story of Noah, this is the same word for ark. And this word is not used anywhere else in the Bible other than Genesis 6 to 9, except right here in Exodus chapter 2. So she takes an ark, and she daubs it with pitch. Same thing Moses did with the ark in Genesis 6 chapter 14. And she puts her son in the ark, trusting God, and she obeys Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh said to put the sons in the river. And she outmaneuvers the serpent, obeying his command and putting her son in the ark. She takes a page out of God's own storybook. This is what God did with Noah. Waters were coming that would kill Noah and his family, but God appoints Noah to build an ark. And so learning from these stories, learning in faith, Moses' mother says, I will do like God did. I will do like Noah did. I will build an ark to save my child from the waters. And so this ark didn't take nearly as long to build as Noah's, but she puts her child trusting in God. Can you imagine that moment? I didn't think of this all week, but it came over me this morning, this moment of faith for this mother. The Nile is a big daddy river. I mean, the water flows there. She, she, she finds a way to tuck Moses into the reeds. Hopefully he doesn't, he doesn't go away too fast and the basket turns over and he drowns anyway. This is a great act of faith. Trusting in God, saying, God, you did this with Noah. I'm going to put my son in an ark 
And would you save him from these waters that will kill him? Would you save him? Would you draw him out of the river? So she puts him in the river. What irony. And God saves him. So first, the first daughter is Moses' mother. Then the second daughter is Moses' sister, his mother's daughter. And she stands by watching to see what's going to happen to the ark on the waters. It has her little brother in it. And then when the ark is found, she steps forward and she, what else do you call this? Shrewdly, craftily recommends that she find a Hebrew nurse for the child. So again, a daughter is outmaneuvering the work of Pharaoh and of Satan as he tries to bring about the death of the son. Amazing irony here. <laughs> and then, I mean, she makes a recommendation. Pharaoh's daughter thinks that's a good idea. She goes and gets Moses' mother. And now, this is, this is maybe the best irony in the chapter. Now, not only is Moses saved from death in the river, not only is he permitted to live, but now Pharaoh's household is going to pay Moses' mama to nurse him and bring him up. I mean, this is, this is just like God. This is what it means in Romans 8 when he says, we are more than conquerors. Because God is sovereign, he doesn't only defeat the enemy. He makes the enemy captive to serve the everlasting good and the joy of his people. He doesn't only go here and save Moses' life. He's also going to provide funds for Moses' family from the household of Pharaoh that Moses would be raised and receive a Hebrew education in his earliest years. So Moses... Mother is a daughter of Levi. Moses' sister is a daughter of his mother. And then the third daughter here is Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's own daughter. Maybe this is even better irony. She, of all people, sees the ark in verse 6. And she opens it and she has pity on the child. It, she knows who this is. Verse 7, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And her father has commanded that every son be cast into the river. And you know what? This son has been cast into the river. But now she will draw him out of the river. She will rescue him. He has been put in according to Pharaoh's edict. And now she's going to draw him out. She's going to save him, rescue him from the river. And so she names him Moses. Moses means, to. it's based on the verb meaning to draw out of water. And here, the water of the Nile represents certain death for an infant. Death for many adults. Put an infant in the Nile, it's certain death. And so she draws him out from death. She saves him and draws him out. And the great irony is that Exodus 2 doesn't want us to miss. This will not be the only time that being drawn out, being saved from death is relevant in the life of Moses. He's drawn out from death as an infant. He will be drawn out from death again as Pharaoh seeks to kill him in just a few verses. And then climactically, Moses will be God's instrument to draw out his people from Egypt. 
the very thing Pharaoh so greatly fears. God will use Moses, the one named after the drawing out, to draw his people out of Exodus. Those are three Exoduses there in Moses' life. It is an amazing thing here, uh, and thinking about these various Exoduses. Uh, we've talked before about how uh, history rhymes, that God does a certain thing and then does it again in, in a similar pattern later on, does it again in a similar pattern later, later on. But history doesn't only rhyme, God reasons. This is not just an interesting fact that, oh, the one who would draw the people out of Egypt was also drawn out of the water when he was an infant, also drawn out of Egypt in his middle life. No, no, no. They're related. God's doing something in Moses. He's making a man in Moses. He's having him lead the people where he himself is gone. Exodus and wilderness are not new realities for Moses. God's already sent him there. He sent him ahead to prepare him for the climactic work he had for him to do later on. So it's the daughters who saved the son. Levi's daughter and her daughter and even Pharaoh's own daughter. We're going to see in a couple weeks that Jethro's daughter will save Moses from another near-death experience. So God protects the son through the daughters. He preserves the child through faithful women. In this first season of life, Moses, as great as he will be, does not fend for himself. Moses doesn't save himself. Before he becomes the protector and deliverer of God's people, he is first one who is protected, who is delivered by these faithful women. As, a, as an infant, Moses does nothing. He, he does not act to save himself, but others do so for him. It's a good lesson to some of what we're called to as adults related to our kids. The season of childhood is a vulnerable season. There are provisions that we're making, protections that we're putting in place. There's ways that we're delivering, so to speak, and raising our children in ways they don't even know at the beginning and aren't really understanding in many ways until it comes later on. And yet God is calling us as parents, as grandparents, as friends, to embrace the inconvenience of thinking and living for others in ways like that. It, it, you don't just protect children and preserve children with kind of bonus energy you just happen to have. Like, raising children is inconvenient. This is why the world increasingly doesn't want to have children. It's inconvenient. In a me-centered, self-centered world and life, you don't bring in the inconvenience of children that you need to protect and deliver and provide for. But here, maturity, mature adults, Moses' mom makes provision for Moses and gives her own self. She gives her own energy, gives her own finances, gives her own life so that Moses can live. So there's a, that's a word for all of us. But I do think there's a particular word I want to offer here for our ladies, for sisters in Christ, for mothers, for daughters, that you not discount the role that you have to fill in the protecting and raising of sons and daughters. Without the daughters in Exodus chapter 2, there would be no Moses. Moses, the son, is saved by the daughters. And you might wonder, where's Moses' father in all this? Is he absentee? Is he delinquent? The answer, as far as we know, is he's not absentee. He's not delinquent. 
He's just a Israelite slave waking up early, working hard, doing his best, going to sleep late. And what was his stay-at-home wife doing while he was out in the work world? She was doing the most important work in the world. She was raising the son through whom God would deliver his own people from slavery. She was liberating the nation from bondage by protecting and delivering her children. It's about Miriam and Aaron too, Moses' sister and brother. Sisters in Christ, don't let the serpent fool you into thinking that you'd be doing the really important work if you went out to the fields with Moses' father. The heroes in this chapter are the daughters. And it's not daughters who are trying to pretend to be sons. It is daughters being daughters fulfilling the glorious calling they've been given by God. And it saves the people from slavery in due course. So number one, God protects the child through faithful women. Now number two, God prepares the man through testing. This is verses 11 to 22. God prepares the man through testing. This is the second 40-year period. And Moses shows an instinct here to take action to protect and deliver others. But it's not yet God's timing. That's verses 11 to 15. Moses takes an action. It's not yet God's timing. God has put something in his heart. There is, you might want to call this an internal call, an aspiration. God's given him a dream that Moses might, at risk to himself, be God's instrument in liberating the nation from Egyptian bondage. God put a dream in his heart. But it's not yet God's timing. God hasn't yet given him the external confirming circumstances. Moses is in this tension between feeling something subjectively from God and then having objective external confirmation by God in the world that that's his calling. He's in between here. Calling is at work. And perhaps Moses steps out too quick and tries to live in a calling that is only subjective, and God hasn't yet given it to him fully by objective circumstances in the world. In the meantime, God has a Midian for him. God has a wilderness for him to prepare him for his life's work. And there in Midian, God's hand remains on Moses, and he continues to learn how to act for the sake of others. This is verses 16 to 22. So we have two scenes here in midlife. This is Moses' midlife crisis. Two scenes here in verses 11 to 22. The first is that we talk about the second exodus. The first exodus is Moses being drawn out from the death of the river. And now the second exodus is God draws Moses safely out of Egypt when Pharaoh wants to kill him. When Moses comes of age... He has a heart for God's people. You see that in verse 11. This is careful language in verse 11. Twice it says his people, referring to the Hebrews. Moses has a heart for his people. So Moses went out. That means he's leaving the palace, leaving Pharaoh's household of protection and of comfort. He goes out and he looks on the burdens of his people. This is, this is the language of somebody about to act on behalf of others. He goes out from his place of privilege and protection and then he looks on the needs and he's going to act to try to help bring about those needs. 
Just like Pharaoh's daughter took pity on Moses, now Moses takes pity on the people. It's the good attribute in Moses. Now, at this point, it would be really easy to do a, a do not murder veggie tale here for the children. Just moralistic lesson, do not murder. It's good for the children to hear. It's good for all of us to hear. See, Moses took things into his own hands, and now God's going to delay delivering the people for 40 years. But I'm not sure that it's all that simple. It may be the case that Moses is putting himself forward here sinfully. He's acting in his own strength. God means to humble him first and then put Moses forward in God's perfect timing. There may be something to that. I think there's something to that. But before we're too hard on Moses, it's important to know what the inspired New Testament writers have to say about this season of Moses' life because it's dealt with twice. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, talks about it, and Hebrews chapter 11, that Hall of Fame faith chapter, mentions it. Let me read to you Acts 7, 23 to 25. When Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart from God to visit his brothers. And visit here means to visit like God visits, to bring salvation and help. Not just to have, you know, hang out for a few days and then go back to the palace now. This is, this is a visitation where he comes to bring help and relief. To, bring, to visit his brothers and children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, listen to this, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Stephen didn't say murder. Stephen said that he defended the oppressed and avenged him. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. That's Acts 7, 23 to 25. Now Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. Here's how the author of the Hebrews talks about this moment. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, age 40, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. So Stephen and Hebrews don't mainly teach a lesson, or at all here, about do not murder. So before we dump on Moses, we should realize that something profound is happening in him. God's doing a work in his heart here as a young man. Moses has been instructed in all the wisdom of Egypt, Acts 7.22 says, and yet he finds it lacking. And he rejects the fleeting pleasures of sin, and he chooses instead to be mistreated with God's people. He defends the oppressed man. And in doing so, he chose over all that Egypt had to offer him, he chose the greater reward of God's promises for his people, which we now know culminates in the person of Christ. So that there may be some sense here in verse 12 that Moses goes out on his own initiative rather than in response to God's. And maybe that's, that's this, the question of verse 14. Maybe it's a zinger question. When a fellow Hebrew says to Moses, who made you ruler and judge over us? Maybe that cuts Moses to the heart, thinking, well, God didn't clearly make me that yet. He's given me a dream for it. 
He's put it in my heart, and I've acted out of turn here to do what he's perhaps calling me to do later, but isn't yet clearly calling me to do now. But in 40 years, the answer to the question, who's made you ruler and judge over us? The answer is God has. God does this for Moses. And it's actually a kind of a similar question that we saw with Joseph back in Genesis 37. His brothers say to him, Joseph has had these dreams. And we know these dreams end up coming true later on. And Joseph's brothers say to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? And the answer at that point is not Joseph's to give. That's God's answer. And in the meantime, God has 13 years of slavery in which he's preparing Joseph to be the kind of man who would be ruler and judge over his brothers. And for Moses, he has a 40-year wilderness at midlife to prepare Moses to be the kind of man who would be ruler and judge over his people. And that's the second scene then. The second scene here in point number two is verses, 11 to 20, is verses 16 to 22. And when we come to the end of 15, we see that Moses comes to a well. I, I don't know if that, that triggers anything for anybody, but uh, I think what it's supposed to show us, if we're remembering what's happened in Genesis, you remember Genesis 24? When Abraham's servant goes out to try to find a wife for Isaac, where does he meet her? He finds her at a well. And then Genesis 29, Isaac's son Jacob goes out to find a wife. And where does he meet his wife Rachel? At a well. And now Moses, having been cast out of Egypt into the wilderness, comes to a well. He has outrun Pharaoh's power. And he's been saved from being killed by Pharaoh, but he has not outrun God's favor. God puts a well there. God means to bless Moses. It's a sign of blessing. And God is going to give Moses water there. And he's going to give Moses bread through Jethro's family. They're going to provide bread. And God's going to take care of Moses in his wilderness and prepare Moses to lead the people of Israel into the wilderness in which God will provide for them water and bread. And also, God's going to provide for Moses a wife, which is perhaps the single greatest provision you can make for a young man who needs to grow up. And so Moses is growing up in Midian, and God's given him a wife. In this second 40-year season, Moses is sowing the seeds that he will be reaping in this climactic season of his life as he leads the people of Israel. Moses is beginning to get his feet under him as one who acts for the sake of others. This is not yet the great deliverance that Moses will eventually perform under God. That's to come later. There's more sowing to be done. There's 40 years of sowing and preparation to be done. God is forming and shaping Moses with these various tests in midlife. And it's, it, this is not just the case for us today. It's very, this, is, this, is, this is not just the case for Moses. This is very much the case for us today. These tests that God brings, we sang about trials. And we as a church have been through many trials. Or you might call them many tests as a church here in recent years in our very short history. And what God is doing in tests for Moses 
and for us is he's not just checking to see what's inside, but he's producing, he's developing, he's growing up, he's making us more mature. This is not just an little examination. I'll see what you're made of, Moses. Put you to a test and we'll find out. It's not just an evaluation. It's a catalyst. Testing produces. Testing brings about maturity. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So by Moses going out and looking on the needs of the people, and then by Moses going out and looking and seeing the needs of Jethro's daughter, daughters and coming to their rescue, Moses is setting habits in place, patterns in place that will make him the kind of man to fulfill God's calling in the great deliverance that God has for him to be an instrument of. And this, this is how we want to be as Christians. We want to be the kind of people who would go out from our comforts, go out from our protections, go out from what's easy, go out from our riskless space, take a risk, see the needs of others, inconvenience ourselves, often at great cost to ourselves, and help bring about grace, provision for those who are needy. So God protects the child. Second, God prepares the man in the wilderness. And then third and finally, God performs his climactic work through the old man. He performs his climactic work through the old man. And maybe you'd prefer the language of fathers. Maybe you like that from the Apostle John. Children, young men, fathers. It's fine. He, he does his climactic work through the fathers. Verses 23 to 25. Now, we don't get the full 40-year final season of Moses' life. This is just the cusp of it. This is the beginning. This is a little taste of what's coming. We are now on the brink of God's objective call on Moses in chapter 3, and we'll see how that plays out now, the rest of this book and the rest of these first five books of the Bible. Moses is going to reap in the coming season what he has been sowing in the wilderness of Midian. And in this final season of life, when Moses has trained himself and become the kind of person who's most ready to act on behalf of others, Moses doesn't throw away that life experience on a nice cushy landing, a nice comfortable end of life season, but he answers a scary, inconvenient call from God to leave. I'm sure he had great friends for 40 years that he'd built up in Midian. I mean, he's, he's all the way Midian through and through after 40 years. This was an inconvenient exodus from Midian to go save his people under God's call from Egypt. And yet Moses takes this risk that Pharaoh's going to cut his head off, that he's going to lose the comforts that he had grown to love in Midian. And he answers that call as an 80-year-old man in his final season. Which this is, this is perhaps more countercultural than it's ever been. The world has a different pattern of expectations and a different way of thinking about adulthood than is true of Moses' life and is true biblically. The subtle word from the world is light the world on fire when you're young. Be famous, build a platform, do your most important stuff right away, and then earn your keep, nice, comfortable, easy landing in retirement, disappear in that final season, and enjoy the comforts of life. 
But the biblical vision is exactly the opposite. The world's vision is based on bodies. When do you have the best body for athletics? When do you have the best body for Instagram? Well, your 20s and 30s. But God's vision is based on spiritual maturity. And the strength of those young adult bodies being poured in to the raising of children, the inconvenience of what it takes to pour yourself out for the lives of children, and in that, the kind of spiritual maturity that's being developed for being a father to a people, not just a father to your own children, being a father in the church, being in your last season, the kind of person that God would use as an instrument to do perhaps the greatest work of your life, not to have a nice, easy landing, Take the energy of young adulthood and put that into patterns and sowing and preparations that then have their full effect in the lives of others in the maturity of the father years, the, the older adult years. Let's, uh, we'll close here with verses 23 and 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Two quick things here as we close. There's a trigger, and there's timing. What is it after 80 years, 80 years of life for Moses, 80 years since he preserved Moses' life and drew him up out of the river, what is it that rouses God now, 80 years later? It's the cries of his people. The suffering that God has permitted produces the groaning that cries to God for help, to which he responds with his deliverance. The turning point in this chapter, the turning point in the Exodus story, humanly speaking, is when God's people cry out, when God's people pray. I take this as a great encouragement to pray, to turn groaning into prayers. Who knows what prayer God is waiting to hear, God is prompting in his sovereignty to then respond to with his action. And the last verse there says that God knew. God knew what? What did God know? There's no object to the knowing. What did God know? We'll see in next week in chapter 3, verse 7. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their suffering. God knows their suffering. He's aware. And now in his perfect timing, he will ask. So prayer's the trigger, and then last thing to see is his timing. This is, this is amazing timing. This is otherworldly timing. Verse 23 says that this is after many days. Many days? It's been 40 years. It's been 80 years since Moses was born. And now here we are, 80 years after his birth, sitting on the cusp of God's call and God's deliverance of his people. It took God 80 years. Years. He designed 80 years to get Moses ready for this. And we'd be wise to be slow to judge how immediately God expresses his favor and shows his hand for deliverance in our lives. Verse 24 says that God remembered his covenant. Let me end with this. He remembered his covenant. 
What does it mean that he remembers his covenant? It does not mean that he had forgotten about it and then he remembered that he had done it. It's not what it means. To remember related to a covenant means to take action at the proper time to fulfill the terms of the covenant as promised. And what were the terms that God had promised to Abraham? He told him in Genesis 15 that the people for 400 years would be mistreated, including being in slavery. And then at God's perfect timing, the iniquity of the Amorites in the promised land would be fulfilled. It would be time to cleanse the land of their iniquity. And it would be time for him to draw his people out. And God made the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 about the nation that would enslave his people. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out. They shall be drawn out. They shall exit with great possession. And so now we'll see that played out here in the weeks to come. As we come here to the table, we could point to how this pattern in Moses' life of protected as a child, developed, growing in young adulthood, pouring himself out for the sake of others, uh, later on, how that plays out in the life of Jesus. Jesus was protected from the dragon king Herod in his infancy, as we mentioned last week. He sought to devour the male children, and God drew Jesus out of Bethlehem to Egypt, ironically. God also prepared Jesus through testing in the wilderness. For Jesus, it was 40 days, just like Moses, 40 years. And then God performed his climactic work through Jesus in his final days as Jesus gave himself to the point of death to deliver his people. We could go there, but let me end with Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3 makes this compar comparison between Jesus and Moses. We didn't gather here this morning to worship Moses. We gather here to worship Jesus. Here's what Hebrews 3 says. As extraordinary as Moses was, all right, one of the greatest men in the history of the world, as extraordinary as he was, Moses is but a servant in God's house. But Jesus, says Hebrews 3.3, 3, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son. And Jesus invites us here, not to Moses' table. Jesus invites us to his table. This is a meal for the members of City's Church. But if you're with us this morning and you will say, my Savior, my Lord, my treasure, it's not Moses. My Savior, my Lord, treasure is Jesus. Then we would invite you to eat with us. His body is a true bread. Let us serve you.